It's a pleasure to be with you all, if only virtually. The well-known Buddhist author and teacher Pema Chodron offers us this in her book, When Things Fall Apart. I used to have a sign pinned to my wall that read, only to the extent that we expose ourselves over and over to annihilation, can that which is indestructible be found in us? It was all about letting go of everything. I invite you to think about four or five things that make you who you are, that if anybody's going to know you at all, they're gonna know these four or five things about you, that you're a gifted athlete, you're a talented artist, you're passionate about politics or your faith community, you're a devoted parent or grandparent. Perhaps you're known for your beautiful physique and your great head of hair. That would be me. Imagine none of that is true anymore. We're not in the same way. Who would you even be then? Is there an essential you who dwells beneath all of those labels with which we would identify under all those hats we might wear? What's more, is he or she worthy of love? Is he or she capable of giving love? As painful as it may be to entertain those questions, they do reflect a most profound spiritual journey through loss toward essence, if you will, that which is indestructible. It's a journey that so many cancer patients must take in a compressed, accelerated kind of fashion, watching piece by piece of one's identity slowly slip away. If I'm no longer the super mom who never misses a soccer game or a birthday party, who would I even be then? Would I even still be the mom? Life affords us each that guarantee. We will all lose everything. Everything that we are, everything that we have, everything that we love. How do we make peace with that? Is it even possible? I sometimes wonder if one measure of living a successful life lies within our capacity to come to peace with the inevitability of loss. And what's more, might that peace even be seen as a kind of gift, giving us a glimpse every now and then of that which is indestructible. The Buddhists would caution us to be well practiced at letting go, that hanging on, grasping, clinging are sure pathways to suffering. As an illustration, we only need look at how so many of us have been coping with this unfolding pandemic. How long is this gonna go on? When can we get back to normal? I just want my old life back. I am an ardent swimmer. I swim every day. And I remember last year, March 16th, 2020, when my gym announced that because of the virus, they would be closing for up to two weeks. Two weeks? I can't live without the gym for two weeks. Oh yeah, just wait. I hear similar sentiments sometimes from newly diagnosed cancer patients. Can't we just go back to the way things were four or five weeks ago before this ever happened? There's a kind of paradox, I think, that while yes, holding on can lead to suffering, I find that there's also life force in it, in the yearning, in the longing, in the striving. Chemo infusion clinics are filled with patients who have signed up for guaranteed suffering for the possibility of more time, more life. 
Universities are filled with students striving for, investing in, creating a future. When we're young, the future is almost a member of the family, a character in our own biography. Look at how much attention and intention we invest in the future. It shapes almost every decision we make. As we get older, possibility diminishes right along with the future. And the past becomes a far richer member of the family. Stories, memories, stories that might soothe us and bring us peace or stories that might just as soon haunt us. But either way, stories that offer the possibility of meaning. In the saddest irony of all, some of us will even lose those in time. How do we make peace with that? Is there any meaning to be found in everything we will lose? I am not so arrogant as to think I have any answers at all. What I have are stories, both my own and those of countless patients. I've walked beside patients whom I would just as soon call my teachers. I also have a growing faith at this stage of my life that drawing closer toward any paradox and holding the possibility for two competing realities to be true at the same time might just offer a pathway to peace, if not to wisdom. April was a great gal, mid forties, vibrant, professional wife, mom, two great kids. She had this exceedingly rare, exceedingly lethal cancer diagnosis that also happened to be horribly disfiguring. The doctors gave her that awful assessment, nothing more to be done. She greeted that news with this kind of clarity. Michael, I'm dying, I know that. It's the truth. But you know what? It's only one truth of many truths. And her openness to that statement, her willingness for it to shape the remainder of her days was truly something to behold. And there are those who cling so valiantly to those one or two aspects of their identity that without them, life simply wouldn't be worth living. That clinging actually keeps them going. There's the passionate university professor who by any reasonable measure should never have been in a classroom, given how immunocompromised she was, how weak she was. But even her oncologist understood the truth. I see that this is who you are. You're a teacher, you've got to do it. So go teach, just be careful, okay? I remember 20 some years ago, meeting a young mother in the hospital, maybe in her mid thirties, not long before she died. When I met her, she was busy writing a journal, writing letters to her then 11 year old daughter to be read into the distant future. Oh, that's so beautiful, I said. What a, a lovely gesture, what a legacy. No, it's not, she said, I'm just nagging her into the future. Still, just being a mom to the end. Sometimes it might be an object that we cling to with such defiance as a remnant of some aspect of ourselves we just can't release or surrender. Maybe it's an old wedding dress, an old army uniform, an ID badge from a long gone career. Over the last few years of my mom's life, she was acutely aware that things would be wrapping up soon. And so she took to earnestly clearing out, cleaning out every drawer, cabinet and closet, letting go so we wouldn't have to. When death finally came, things had been pretty much sifted down to the bare essentials. 
except for boxes and boxes, acres and acres of family photos, cards, letters, a few tattered newspapers with historic headlines, JFK assassinated, that sort of thing. That last Saturday that we were packing up what was left of her life, I made a final pass through her bedroom closet and in the darkness, high in the corner on the top shelf, I saw this old hat box. How had we missed that? I pulled it out, dusted it off, opened it up. I could not believe my eyes. I felt this searing stab of grief, of pain, but also amazement. It was the hat, this hat that had become legendary in my memory, her Donna Reed hat, I called it, because she looked just like her when she wore it. It was a little pillbox hat covered in these tiny champagne silk leaves, each one tipped with a teeny seed pearl. She bought the hat, I remember, to go with a light blue brocade suit that she would wear to her best friend Janet's second marriage at the Desert Inn in Las Vegas, maybe 1962 or so. My mom was quite the glamorous dresser in her day. Earlier that afternoon, in fact, I'd come upon a photo of the wedding party in the original Desert Inn folder. There my mom and dad were seated at the table looking so young, so handsome, so beautiful. And there was my mom with the hat, the only one at the table with the hat. The thing is, I also knew that under the table were the most stunning pair of pointed toe gold lame stiletto pumps. I'd always had a thing for my mom's high heels, obsessed really surreptitiously trying them on when she wasn't around. Even I knew better than to mess with those. But here it was, the hat. She had kept it, though we had reminisced often about those years, even about that outfit, she never let on that she kept the hat. For decades and decades and decades after letting go, saying goodbye to everything and everyone else, she kept the hat. Why? Did she need it as some kind of touchstone, as proof that that time had been real, that that aspect of her was still true because that hat is still up there in the top shelf of my closet? Unwilling to surrender this last souvenir? It leaves me to wonder, what object am I gonna cling to for no sensible reason as some kind of placeholder for some version of myself I will always want to claim as my own? I don't know. What about you? David Foster Wallace says, everything I let go of has my claw marks on it. And there are those who adapt quite well to loss, adopting a new identity or a new version of the old one. I had so many wonderful conversations with Randy over the last few years of his life, mid fifties, advanced colon cancer, not long before he died, I was walking him out of the clinic and we're still chatting when we got out in the hallway. And up walks another patient, gingerly making her way to the entrance of the clinic. She's on a walker. Randy says, just a minute, Michael. And he goes and he holds the door for her with a big smile on his face. There you go, sweetheart. He comes back to me and he says, you see, Michael, the way I see it, that is my job now, to be kind. That's what I do. Randy's professional life had been one that was animated by intense financial pressures and competition, commercial real estate. It had all been refined, distilled now, down to that as one who shows kindness. 
Cancer had robbed him of so much, but it didn't take away that career opportunity. Didn't take away that place to still find meaning. Kate, in her early 60s, was diagnosed with a recurrence of breast cancer, now stage four. She was a spiritual seeker, an artist, a musician. She played cello in a local chamber orchestra. While raised an Episcopalian, she converted to Judaism much later in life, but not because of marriage or any such conventional reason, but because she said, I love the humor in Judaism. And besides, there's no hell. She also loved the questioning nature inherent in Jewish study. Although any articulation about who or what is God, how does prayer work, what happens after we die, was simply left unarticulated. It didn't matter because she connected to her spirituality in community, playing music in community, praying in community. She did not pray when she was alone. She also shared with me she'd been a survivor of childhood sexual assault, an experience that left deep wounds to be sure, but not the least of which was a crippling fear of dying. And the essence of that fear was, what if I just disappear? There it is, ultimate loss, disappearance. I asked Kate if she'd ever had what any of us might call a peak spiritual experience. Oh yes, she said, playing a big lush piece of music like Handel's Messiah. I got to play that once in Cleveland, full orchestra, chorus, the works. It was transcendent to be in the center of the creation of all of that music. Kate, you just told me that your biggest fear would be that you would disappear, and yet your peak spiritual experience was one in which you disappear, if you will, into the creation of that music. It couldn't possibly have been about you and your cello in that moment. And yet without your cello, the music would not have been the same. What if dying is like that? What if the other side is like that? Letting go, surrendering into this larger harmonic reality in which our little voice is an inextricable piece of the whole. She sighed into that. She exhaled into that. Sometimes we need to summon our imagination to come up with new images and metaphors when we find ourselves immobilized by the fear of loss. I love to hike. And for decades, I have made a nearly annual pilgrimage to Yosemite because there's one hike there that has simply given me my life back more times than I can count. There's no simpler way to put it, oftentimes of great distress. About a dozen years ago or so, I came upon such a time, complete devastation, really, a spiritual crisis, in fact, which I would define as a time of great loss. Everything I had come to believe and trust collapsed right out from under me. And at first I thought, maybe you ought to go to Yosemite, do your hike, try to transcend it, climb out of it. But it just didn't feel right. And then I thought, you know, you've always wanted to see the Grand Canyon, hike to the bottom, you're not getting any younger. What if instead of trying to climb out of it, you climb into it, into the pain, into the earth, see what might be there for you there. So that's what I did. Now, for any of you who have made that descent, you know how staggering it is. And the wisdom that came to me was so clear, concise, profound, really. The Grand Canyon is only grand because of what's been lost. 
not because of one thing that's been added, one particle of soil at a time, letting go, losing itself to the water over the span of five million years. It's incomprehensible, swept away by something so simple as water. I spent that night at the Phantom Ranch at the bottom of the canyon. It's a charming, historic, albeit Spartan compound, communal-like dining room, pretty uh, rustic dorms. That night, the lovely man who served us dinner asked for our attention before we dug in. He wanted to offer us a kind of blessing or invocation before we ate. And he said, my friends, I just wanna welcome you here and I hope that while you're here, you take some time to feel the majesty of this place, the sacredness of it, the power of it. It's like Jerusalem or Mecca for the native people. And he went on to say, no matter how hard it was for you to climb down here this morning, climbing up tomorrow is going to be so much easier. Of course, there were incredulous groans from around the dining table. Yeah, right. And if not, he said, rejoice, rejoice, you got no choice. I love that. I come back to it again and again as a kind of mantra. Rejoice, rejoice, you got no choice. What if, like the Grand Canyon, we are being carved out for our grandeur, hollowed out by loss? so that on our descent, we might catch a glimpse every now and then of that which is indestructible within. Sure, let's savor each vista, cherish each moment, hold on, you bet. But with an oh so light touch and a willingness at any moment to let go, except perhaps For that one thing, so be it.